Welcome to another episode of The Artsy Raven, a show about writing and publishing with your host, J.F. Garrard. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Artsy Raven podcast. I'm your host, J.F. Garrard, and today's episode is called Get Real, Stand Tall, and Take Your Place, and we will be speaking to Britt East, author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Britt is an author and speaker who uses his experience, strength, and hope to challenge and inspire change-oriented gay men to get down to the business of improving their lives. With over two decades of personal growth and developmental experience in a variety of modalities, such as the 12 steps, nonviolent communication, yoga, meditation, talk therapy, and the Hoffman process, Britt is committed to building a personal practice of self-discovery that he can share with gay men everywhere. He lives in Seattle with his husband and their crazy dog. So Britt, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how we got to this point of writing this big book. Yeah, you know, I put it off for two decades, so it's kind of funny <laughs> that we're finally here. Uh, the writing process went really quick once I got started, I think because I procrastinated so long. I So my life completely fell apart two decades ago, and I had the opportunity to rebuild it. And all along the way, I found myself sharing my story, primarily in the 12-step programs I was in. That's really where it all got started for me. And sharing your story is essential in those programs. And I found myself also then speaking at conferences. And people would say, hey, the, your story is so incredible. You got to write it down. People got to you know, read this. And I just felt kind of weird about it. I just felt like, you know, telling my story that all these people are still walking the planet, still alive out there. I just felt like it was overexposing in some way. And I just put it off for a long time. And it wasn't until I was working with a coach uh, maybe two years ago who helped me flip the script to, and realize that if I made the... Um, reader the hero of the story rather than me if i kind of decentered myself then it wouldn't feel so kind of icky like by sharing all this stuff so what i ended up doing was making the the meat of the content about the kind of kitchen table wisdom um, um to to create a life worth living and i just interweave my personal narrative and my journey to build rapport with the reader, help them see they're not alone and that kind of thing. But, but really it's the reader that's the hero of the journey. The reader's at the center of the story. And once I unlocked that, I wrote the book in probably eight months. I mean, it went really fast, but it, that was the key, figuring the right frame for the project. And then it went really smoothly. So when I listen to your story, so tell me what happened 20 years ago and what was what is the 12 steps like I don't quite understand yeah yeah so the 12 steps is a um, method to recover from an addiction any addiction and it was started with Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1920s in the U.S. and by a man named Bill W. Anonymity is part of the the cornerstones of the program so the way I got into it was not through alcohol addiction 
20 years ago, I'm 46, so I was in my mid-20s, I was in a long-term relationship with a man. Um, we'd been together for maybe five years at this point, and it was the, you know, the mid-90s, uh, late 90s, and that was pretty rare for, for guys to be in a long-term relationship in that day and age. And to make matters even more challenging for me is that I just had no foundation for adulthood. I lacked all the requisite skills to be part of a healthy uh, adult relationship. And what happened was I ended up having an, an excessive emotional reliance on him. He was my everything. He was my whole world. He wasn't just a partner or a friend. He was also sort of a teacher and a mentor and a guide, which was patently unfair. So here I was putting, making him the center of my universe. And then one day he was arrested for having sex with a minor. And that shattered my world as it would anybody. But because I had over-invested emotionally in him in this relationship and had not yet built a life for myself, it hit even harder. And so it was like everything was obliterated. But the grace in that is that gave me a clean sheet to rebuild my life. So in this case, I could have gotten a lot of social currency by just blaming him, by cutting and running and just skipping out because what he did was so salacious. But because I chose to stay in the relationship and then because he chose to get into a 12-step program for sexual addiction, I experienced the grace of recovery, first in watching him heal and change. And then I experienced it personally by joining the companion program. So in the way that AA has Al-Anon for spouses and partners and friends and family, of alcoholics. Sex addiction also has companion programs. Um, this program is called COSA, Codependence to Sex Addicts Anonymous. There are several programs out there. And it was for people like me who had this issue with codependency and their partners had this issue with sex addiction. And so finally, I was forced to sit in this group and participate in this reciprocal selfless love and take down my masks for the very first time in my life and actually share from the heart who I was. And it was thrilling, it was electrifying. I had grown up hiding as a gay man, closeted and trying never to be seen and then invest making this man my whole world. Well, here I was starting to build a life and relationships all on my own that were just my own and to reveal myself for who I truly was and it was completely thrilling. And that's really what started this whole process of self-discovery, which then got me in meditation and yoga and Buddhism and nonviolent communication, all the rest that you rattled off at the beginning. So while growing up, you said you were hiding a lot. That must have been very difficult. Um, and it didn't sound like you had many role models in a way, like until your first relationship, then you met this person. And in a way he was sort of everything you wanted, in, right? I mean, he's living, freely in a way and um it's someone that you could look up to i guess and yeah, that's really well said you're exactly right so but writing it down is another um step i mean it's a very you know it's one thing to go to AA meetings and then it's another thing to write it down in a book that's available publicly for everybody to read like it's a you know major <laughs> change right yeah it's super um, weird <laughs> But in a way, like when I first saw the book title, A Gay Man's Guide to Life, I actually thought of it as a self-help 
nonfiction book in a way. And um, when I saw the title, I was like, you know, I know a few gay men in my life and admittedly some have come out all the way and some haven't. And it's not something as a cis woman I would understand because I'm able to live, you know, more free. And I thought that maybe by talking to you, um, it would give them some courage and ideas of um, how to deal, I guess, with things. Now, yeah. what are some of the, I guess, tips that you hoped that you would have learned when you were younger from your own book, like looking back? The main lesson I wish I had learned earlier was to not take things so darn seriously. I was in a perpetual state of fight or flight, not only because of straight supremacy and the, all of the bigotry of growing up in 1980s Tennessee in the southeastern part of the US, but also because I grew up and experienced my, the beginnings of my sexuality at the height of deaths due to the AIDS epidemic in the US. So these two things collided. And on top of that, I also experienced some good old fashioned child abuse from my family. All of this meant, like you said so well, that I grew up in, in sort of an oblivion where I had this keen awareness that anything I would be in this world, I would have to make with my own two hands, that nothing would be given to me. I just assumed I would be a pariah for my entire life and probably dead in my early 20s because that there were no media portrayals of us that, that I found as a young person. I'm sure I grew up in Nashville, which has a huge entertainment scene. So I'm sure there was an underground gay scene at the time, but as a young person, I had no access to that. And so, like you said, I grew up with no role model. So I had to be my own role model, which was a disaster. I mean, culture is something transmitted singularly one person to another through in-person contact. And so you can't make up your own culture as an individual um, and have it sustain you in any meaningful way. And so my life was just one series of um, mistakes and disasters. And so my, in writing this book, I'm trying to be like maybe the big brother that some, of the, some guys out there never had and offer up the kitchen table wisdom to help them um, resist the bigotry that they might experience on a daily basis, to help them find the resilience and fortitude that you reference so that they can come out of the closet sooner um, and realize that coming out is not a one-time event, that it happens over the course of your life. I still, I've been out of the closet technically for, you know, 25, 30 years at this point, but I found myself coming out every day in all sorts of different ways. And so, what I, what I wish I would have learned would be to, to enjoy life, to enjoy the doing of things and to not have to fight so much and struggle so much to swim more downstream. But I just didn't have, I mean, I, like I said, I was in a fight or flight mode. So I just never was able to have that awareness. I mean, I'm just thinking about while growing up, like for, because my family watched a lot of Asian culture uh, themed television shows and stuff and gay men were always portrayed as like a com comedy like it's never they're not they're never really taken seriously and I think there is like you say um I'm thinking about the press release you talk about gay racism a bit there is a it's there but no one wants to talk about it it's like you know under the surface until you know something happens and it's like oh my gosh you know are they really gay and then people get really concerned and um, 
scared and I'm not really sh- I mean people are people right so I'm not really sure why that happens but it's the first yeah. time I've heard the term straight supremacy I've never heard that before but yes it makes sense um because when you yeah, you know, generally culture is you know male or female right and there's a lot of debates going on I see online like with the trans and like everyone is you know they have a voice and um it's I mean obviously right now it's like so different from while you were growing up I think like you know there has been an acceptance um of LGBTQ uh, which, yes, is very different from the 80s. Um, now, at one point, um, there's a mention that that uh, gay, white, cis men, male are, like, very privileged. And um, so how do you think that affects gay males? I mean, like, if you're a white male, like... <laughs> I don't know who's asking a very weird question. I don't know where I'm going. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a very logical question. There's a brilliant woman named um, Kimberly Crenshaw who wrote about intersectionality uh, maybe a dozen years ago now, which means that we all stand at the intersection of multiple identities. So maybe I'm a gay, white, cis, male, you know, maybe somebody else is a trans black woman, and that these intersections are both accumulative, meaning we accumulate bird the burden of bigotry um, for various systems, but they are also differentiating. Um, for instance, that think about the experience that many straight women have in society in the U.S. at least is often different than the, the experience of many straight black women. It's different, it's not just accumulative, it's also distinctive. And so that was such a brilliant insight and, and I've drawn a lot of inspiration from that. I think the thing is to realize that we are part of a tiny minority as gay people. And when I say gay, I mean a culture based on sexual orientation as opposed to homosexuality, which is just a, a sexual orientation. People, there's a lot of people who experience various levels of same-sex desire over the course of their life. Some people actually allow that to blossom into fantasy. Some people actually act out on that. But, but fewer people engage on it on a regular basis and even fewer people see it as a something so foundational and meaningful to full sexual full-fledged sexual orientation and then even fewer than that actually come out of the closet and join the gay culture and so we're part of a tiny minority but we do have a separate and distinct culture and what we want at the end of the day like any any minority group is to be seen as fully realized unique individuals yes we may come together and have a distinct culture separate from um, from other cultures but we are unique individuals with stories that deserve to be to be heard and known and we don't want to be the caricatures that you referenced that you saw on television or in entertainment whether we're the the sassy silly next door neighbor or the serial killer or whoever on that spectrum you know we're not we're not just stock characters we're real people with complex and internal lives and so if you're going to get to know us you have to get to know all of us you can't just get to know a convenient piece of us we're not just your life enhancing accessory do you feel that since you came out that you've lost on opportunities like do you think genuinely it's caused an issue Absolutely, definitely. I think it still happens. 
um, particularly, so I have a, a job in the corporate world and I, I work for a company that um, does not celebrate homosexuality and struggles with racial diversity and struggles with gender diversity. It's a lot of um, old white straight men. Um, there are probably a lot of companies in, in corporate America that are in this boat. And so I, you know, the first thing that I was asked when I joined this company was to go in the closet. And I had to make a decision in that time, a very pragmatic decision, like all, like many gay people make, uh, how are we going to turn a buck and earn our ends meet? You know, are we going to have to trade off, trade that off with ways we might limit or minimize or hide or conceal our, our information about our lives or our mannerisms or our tone of speech? And I decided in that moment at the time that I would say yes to the question so I could get the job, but I would immediately start outing myself in all sorts of little ways to the point where now I'm a easily findable gay author on Google and, um, and all of this stuff is on LinkedIn and all my socials and everybody at work knows I'm gay and stuff. So I kind of had the last laugh because I was able to show this person that no, I can be, yeah, my opportunities I'm sure are limited at this company, but at least I can occupy, I can take up space. I can be all of myself, you know, and, and I will carry the, the cost and the consequences associated with that. I, but I can do the job. Being gay does not preclude my ability to do the job. People are not so shocked and horrified and outraged at my mere existence that all work stops. Um, but there are consequences to it, and I have no illusions that I am not going to be rising the corporate ladder because I have decided to, to, to uh, allow people to get to know me. Yeah, when I was, yeah, I googled your name, and I was shocked to find a LinkedIn profile with the same name, and I was like, I think that's him. So you weren't using a pen name at all when you were. No, and I have a unique name, so I'm, I'm easy <laughs> to find, so it's all there. Oh my goodness. So like, so finding a publisher, was that hard or did you have some help? Yeah, so what I did was I um, professionally published the book through an agency. And the reason I did that, it was twofold. I wanted complete creative control because the, the information that I was imparting is so sensitive that I was, or maybe let me restate that, I was so sensitive about it that I did not want um, there to be any issues with maybe straight editors changing words, maybe having a lack of understanding, maybe trying to water down the message that I thought was really important um, for the gay, the gay people that read the book. And I wade into a lot of uncomfortable spaces like gay racism, like gay misogyny, because I think gay people need to hear that, that just because we experience bigotry does not give us a free pass. In fact, often, especially gay white cis men are often the perpetuators of much of this misogyny and racial bigotry and animus. And I was worried that a, a, a traditional publisher would water down that message. I was also keenly aware of the timeline with traditional publishing, that by the time I secure an agent, by the time the book gets to print, it could easily be two years, and we have gay people suffering today. So I decided, no, I want to 
take the reins and I'm going to pay for this out of my own pocket because I believe in the message and the service work associated with this. This is not a, a financial endeavor for me. I have a job. This is really about service work. How can I serve the community? So I hired an agency to professionally publish it. And I was absolutely thrilled with the whole process. Did they also have PR people or did you have to hire extra marketing people to do push the book out? Both. And this, you know, I was so dumb. Um, I don't I work, say that. <laughs> no, it's true. I work in digital marketing. So I thought I was so smart and I was so dumb. Um, the book world is so unique. There's just nothing like it. Uh, and you almost like have to go through it before it, any of it makes sense. I mean, you know, there's a lot of information out there you can read and blogs and resources. And I definitely did a lot of that, but there's, you just have to kind of go through it. And so what I've learned is that there are different marketers with different specialties. So I, the, the agency I hired to publish the book helped me with the launch strategy, the pricing and the initial promotions and all that. They did a fantastic job. And then once that contract ended, it was up to me to source and engage other uh, paid professionals um, to handle PR, to be a publicist, to, um, you know, uh, book podcast appearances and things like that. And they all have different niches and they're all very important. And they're all such unique worlds. They really, I mean, there's not that many that I found full service agencies that would do every single slice and do it well. So I just have a whole glam squad behind me <laughs> that's kind of helping me push this message out into the world. So I'm really fortunate. That's cool. Now, do you have any advice for people who find it difficult to finish a book? Like, I know you were inspired and you sat down and you did it, but there are all these people that are like, I want to write a book, I want to write a book, and then yeah. nothing happens, you know? It's so hard, and I'm the worst example of this because, <laughs> so, I, you know, I, my background is in classical music. I was a professional musician for years and years. Oh, um, what did you play? The flute. The and flute. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, and so spending six, eight hours a day alone in a practice room, one of the things you build is discipline. And so it's, I'm just, I'm highly regimented and disciplined and I'd lead a really kind of um, disciplined life. And so that part really comes natural to me. So I'm probably of no use to anybody who maybe struggles with procrastination. I guess I would say what I did for this book, because I've been writing my entire life, but mainly I wrote poetry. So for this book, um, I, I'd never written this many words and I was afraid I would feel like I was drowning in them. So I created a really strong frame, which helps with the sales and marketing anyway. So I had a, an, an abstract for the project. I had mapped out all the chapters. The book is very logical and linear. I just broke down all the facets of life, mind, body, spirit, finances, career, yada, yada, yada. I just broke them all down. And so I had such a strong frame. It was just a matter of putting my butt in the chair each day and getting the writing done. And because I was so inspired, because probably I put off the project for so many years, I had all this pent up desire to to, for, for the book to be born, it, you know, it really did flow kind of effortlessly. Sorry to say <laughs> for people who might be struggling, but that's reality. I guess my main advice to answer your question is to work on the frame, work on, do the prep work, just like you would do prep work before painting your house. Don't just leap into the, especially if you're writing fiction, my goodness, I would think you've got to really focus on that prep work so that the, by the time you get to the creative process, you can let all of that go and just let the magic happen. Okay. So are you working on any other projects or books? 
I'm working on a sequel. I mean, the, the response to this book has been so overwhelming. I've already started writing the sequel and I envision actually an entire series. So this book is called A Gay Man's Guide to Life and it's kind of the primer. And I intend to delve deep on a variety of topics in fall and successive books. So the next book will be called A Gay Man's Guide to Love. And we'll be looking at, you know, romantic love, platonic love, everything in between through the lens of gay culture. And, and again, a very similar structure to this book, but a deep dive on that one topic. And I think there could be a gay man's guide to insert topic here, anything. And so I kind of envision an entire series. Okay. Now you're going to share a little bit of a reading with us. So do you want to tell us a bit before you go into your reading? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a section of the book that's actually maybe in the second third of the book. And it involves, it describes the, the first time I found my voice. And that's what I treasure about the writing process is tapping into that inner authenticity where I feel like I'm a hollow read and, and the words just kind of flow through me. And this was the first time I have a really distinct memory. This first time I found that was when I did a public speaking event on healthy sexuality, kind of ironic, given the nature of the addiction program I was in. Um, and this was at a 12-step uh, retreat for sex addicts. And I was a guest speaker as a codependent to sex addicts. So this was early on in my recovery. And I found myself surrounded by all these scary <laughs> sex addicts that we, are, so many of us in life have these moral judgments about um, what people do, the, you know, this is a really juicy one, an easy one to have moral judgments about. And I was kind of confronted with being surrounded by all these guys and the resulting experience. So this part of the book is a little bit more poetic than some of the other parts of the book because it also wrestles with the relationship between gay men and straight men. And that relationship is so fraught and perilous, I decided to take a lot of artistic license in the book instead of lots of the book is just straight up informational um, cut and dry. This is a little bit more artistic. And so, um, so yeah, that's what I'm going to describe here. And um, so just kind of have that in your mind, that picture painted in your mind as I, as I get going. I walk to the whiteboard and look over my shoulder. So what do you want to talk about? I asked the guys half joking. We are gathered together in a tattered church basement, yet they sit huddled around me as if waiting for some kind of halftime speech, something to buck them up and send them off back into the world that has rejected them so they might resume their fight. There is a desperation in their big bodies as they look up at me. They are both angry and seeking consolation. These sex addicts, about whom I previously might have made a snide remark, now somehow seem both imposing and tender. A few of them fidget, sensing I have nothing prepared, almost feeling sorry for me. Someone shouts, just tell us a story. Others look at the floor and bite their nails, wondering when they can leave. Sure, but what do you really want to know? I respond, hoping for a hook no dice. I turn back to the whiteboard and jot down a few discussion prompts. The guys warm to me slightly and offer some suggestions. 
I add their ideas and sense a subtle shift in power as if I'm the one now holding them. But they have not yet noticed the change. They titter anxiously, eager to move on, assuming my defeat, but not yet wanting to be too cruel. That will come later. Suddenly I turn to face them. I speak forcefully and my words are electric. Immediately they are wrapped as if nothing and nobody has ever talked like this to them before, treated these big burly men like little boys, boys who might yet be made whole, who could still inherit a past that might have been, had something gone just a little differently. I have never seen faces like this, almost like dolls, mouths empty as saucers, eyes wide with surprise. Some men bend forward, clutching at their knees. Others rock in their chairs. I don't have a clue what I'm saying, what I have summoned, brought forth. I just know that it's brilliant, that for this one hour in time, something seizes me and I am luminous. The words tumble out of me and dance like stars. I have no idea how any of this has happened, just that it could not have happened any other way. Afterwards, they cheer. And then, one by one, come to cry in my arms, forming a line, dozens and dozens of them, each a hairy tangle of tears. These rough men, many of whom have committed the most heinous of crimes, some even court-ordered to be here, pried out of their straight world and dumped into this cauldron. They don't know what to make it me, yet somehow have listened, have heard past my feminine voice, ignored all of those men I have known. They reached for me, begging for more. They don't even know what they want, just that they must have it, won't rest until they can get back to that incantation, that moment of mercy when we were one. I'm desperate to help them, and yet I'm spent. Once again, am nothing but me. Eventually they give up, filing out of the room, onto their next session, not daring to linger any longer. But what I remember most is their eyes, blazing with lightning that must yet land. And hours later at dinner, overhearing their amazement as they bragged to my partner, his face crumpled, head shaking in confusion, that this must all be some mistake. Some of us have struggled in any capacity to walk with straight cis men. Let's face it, many of them have broken our trust over and over. Many of them have beaten and ridiculed us, stolen our money and our opportunities, trampled our hearts and kicked us out of our families. And yet it is unfair to paint them all with the same brush. Like any collection of people, straight cis men are all individuals with unique stories that deserve to be heard. Many of them would love us, given half a chance. If we gay men really want to be free from homophobia, we must first transcend it. 
we must get curious, rise above our wounds, and extend our hearts to the places that scare us. The collective karma of straight cis men need not preclude our love and friendship. The love I feel for the straight cis men in my life is rooted in the present. It has nothing to do with amends or reparations and requires no reciprocity. I adore them because that's merely what happens when souls come into contact, hearts get full, regardless of sexual or gender orientation. To my surprise, it turns out I have the capacity to selflessly love straight men. I can release them and release me, hold their fears and nurture their pain. I can stand tall next to them and take up space. I can look them in their eyes and let them melt in my arms. No agenda, no expectations, no resentments, just their gentle sobs as they wrestle with the tyranny of their fathers and navigate the treacherous waters of this new world. Oh, what wreckage they have wrought and how like little boys they cling, utterly bewildered, unable to hold any of it. These burly men run riot, presuming dominion over everyone, expecting each day to be a halcyon while trampling tenderness and self-expression. The one true aristocracy enslaved by their privilege as they burn the world, embers softening to ash. How could I but reach for them, these fresh folds? Pull them close as they squirm, clutching their plights and their slights, wretched and wriggling, having never known a bad day, but now forced to learn how to suffer. How could I not hold their fragile fingers as their knock knees tremble? Those that long to find their way, but lug their patrimony like a yolk nose running, choking on their obligations. There's no magic formula for forgiveness and nothing shall be forgotten. But how could I not be moved by their seeping expectations, spoiling in the sun, bedeviled by this world that they inherited? And damn it if my heart is not called. What they've done is so very real. And yet in some way, they're just beholden to patterns like I've been beholden to patterns, tugging us forth into some collective psychosis. Are we really so different? And if in some small measure, I might meet myself in their eyes and somehow feel healed, why would I deny either of us the pleasure? If I might find some way to share a laugh at our mutual frailties, how could I resist? And so I happily hug their necks and tuck them in, check their closets and search under their beds, hold their little hands, kiss their soft brows, such that they might never know what I have known and live free one day to teach their children. Oh, thank you. That was so beautiful and powerful. I can see it in my mind as you were reading what was happening. That's a, oh, thank you. Yeah, a very memorable moment uh, thank that you. you've written down there. And um, thank you so much for speaking with us. Now, 
where can we find you? Your website is BritEast.com, right? So Yeah, that's really the best place to find me. It's the hub for all of my work. It has links to all my socials. I have a wealth of free materials there, free articles, a free blog. I post all my podcast appearances there. And then it also has a link where you can purchase my book if you if you want to delve deep into this. And, uh, you know, it has all the various online stores that have it available. And the book's also available in, in local bookstores as well. But it, um, my website's really the easiest kind of one-stop shopping. Yeah. And I noticed your blog had a lot of positive uh, posts for people, whether they're gay or not. Yeah. Like, I think it's a good read for people to visit and uh, to, you know, learn something positive for the day. Uh, and it's you. tough, you know, going through this pandemic together. So... So thank you very much again, and uh, good luck on your writing journey. So, thank you so much. I appreciate okay. it. Bye. For more upcoming episodes of the Artsy Raven about writing and publishing, visit us at jfgarad.com slash podcast. A reminder to Patreon subscribers that there is bonus content available for every episode on the Patreon website. If you enjoyed the show, you can show your appreciation by buying us some digital coffee. The Artsy Raven is produced by J.F. Garrard. The voice in the show's introduction is Chris Gorman, and music is by Tim Moore. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe. Mm-hmm.